0: Will you stand with me um, as we read from God's word this morning, the passages from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on this earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Amanda. We are in Revelation. We have two today and next Sunday. We're just going through the seven churches, and then we will be transitioning I'm gonna put this up here to uh, something else. But I want to remind you that as we walk through these seven churches, of course, there is a word, and we've talked about this a lot over the weeks, you can go back, Robert gave a more thorough explanation last week, I thought he did a great job, there is a word for every church that would ever come from Jesus' message to these seven churches, which means there is a specific word for Orlando Grace Church in each of these churches, and so this morning we're coming to the church in Philadelphia, the original church of brotherly love. And in God's providence, we know that just about 5 years after this message was delivered to this church that persecution rose for them. They were already experiencing persecution, but we know that persecution rose both from the Romans and from the Jews. So they were getting it from multiple angles. If you were found to be a professing Christian, they would bring you in maybe before um, a Roman proconsul or an imperial governor, and they would tell you to deny Christ, deny this faith that you have, and then you had to worship one of the Roman gods or maybe the, the Roman emperor, and if you didn't do it, things were not going to go well for you. And it's really interesting to me that we have a lot of historical literature from beginning in the second century where we see the purpose of Revelation playing out. Remember, the, the, the purpose of ancient Near East apocalyptic literature, that's a mouthful. The purpose of, of literature like Revelation is to comfort Christians in suffering. And so, we have these documents from all over, all over the Roman Empire where martyrs are going to their death, and as they die, they're quoting Revelation. And so I think it was about three or four weeks ago I talked about Polycarp. You know, Polycarp in his 80s was brought into a Roman amphitheater. He was in front of a Roman authority. He was told to deny Christ. He triumphantly didn't. He said, you know, Christ has not failed me all these years. I will not deny him now. They began to tie him up to burn him. He said, no need tying me. I'll stay. And as he was burning, people heard him pray. They recorded this prayer. He says, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. Do you hear what he's doing in that prayer? He's quoting Revelation. This is all from Revelation. My king and my savior, the lake of fire, the company of martyrs, the cup of Christ. This is seeing the purpose of Revelation play out. He's quoting what Jesus said to that church in his great time of need. When he was burning, he didn't show any vengeance. He didn't seem to show any anger. It seemed like he remained relatively calm. And you have stories like this all over the empire, people dying and quoting Revelation as they do. And when the Greeks saw this, they have a word for it. The, the, the Greek word is hypomone. So, mone means stay. Hypo means hyper. So, hyper stay, which is where we get our English word for endurance. When When the Romans and the Greek culture saw what was going on, what they saw was endurance. And so to this church in Philadelphia, there are no critiques. There's only praise and a call to endure. Endure what's coming your way. And so that is the main message to the church in Philadelphia and the main message to us. We know that they were about to receive increased persecution, and Jesus wants to Providentially and lovingly and graciously Prepare them for that season And He wants to prepare us as well And if we really follow Jesus We are going to face difficulties Because of our faith If we follow Jesus We will have stresses that we would not have If we didn't follow Jesus in this life We will have difficulties We will have disappointments We will even have broken hearts If we hold fast to what Jesus is teaching us But the main point here ...that Jesus is trying to encourage the church in Philadelphia and us with is it is worth it. Endure to the end. Weather these trials. It is worth it. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage and I want to let it answer three questions for us. I want it to answer the question why we need endurance. Because it certainly does that. How we get endurance. And then what biblical endurance produces. That's what we're going to do. So why we need endurance... Well, the text says very clearly we need endurance because we have little power and trials are coming. Little power and trials are coming. Chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world. So the church in Philadelphia, they have little power. They were not a very large church. Again, they're experiencing Persecution from the the Jewish culture kind of to their legalistic right, they're facing persecution from the Roman culture, kind of to their licentious left. The Romans are turning on them, the Jews are turning on them, they're small, they're powerless. And if you're paying attention to this passage, you you would probably wonder, is is what Jesus is saying here is he's promising that in these trials, he will protect us from the trials. Because there's been a lot of debate over the ages is is how you translate this Greek word. Is it from or is it through? Is he promising to protect us from the trials or is he promising to keep us through the trials? And for me, it seems very obvious what Jesus is saying. He's promising to protect us through the trials, to keep us through the trials, He's not saying you're going to be evacuated in some way. He's not saying you're going to be taken out of the trials in this life because of faith in him. And I think it, it, it makes logical sense because why would Jesus say, hold fast, endure, hyperstay if his promise was, I'm going to pull you out of this trial. Have enough faith in me and things are going to get easier. That doesn't make any logical sense. And I mean, it, and it doesn't fit with the rest of the New Testament, which seems to be really clear that there will be trials and that God will preserve us through these trials. In John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So a few weeks ago, I I talked a little bit about Paul's promise that all Christians will experience persecution of some kind. 2 Timothy 3.12 all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. And, and I said a few weeks ago, I'm almost embarrassed to even get up here and talk about this given the persecution that has happened to the original audience, given the persecution that's happening in the global east and some in the south. What do I as a 21st century American know about persecution? But I, I, was, I kept coming back to this verse over the past three weeks I was talking with friends about this verse because it's a promise, so I can't just bl- brush it off because I don't experience persecution the way that so many others have and do experience persecution because there is a real promise. We will really have this kind of persecution, and in our society, you know, it may not be as severe as what the church in Philadelphia experienced. It will not, might not be as severe as what... Christians in Asia and Sudan experience, but it is still here. It is still a promise. It is still real, and we will experience it on multiple fronts. You know, as I, I look, I really thought about this for about three weeks, I, and I looked around and I meditated on it and I prayed about it. And as I look at Christians in America who I think have a holistic, thriving, spirit filled walk with Jesus, a consistent mark I see in their lives is they. They receive, we can call it at least pushback, if not persecution, from both fronts. You know, and that's what's going on here. Remember, the, these Christians are receiving pushback from the more legalistic, right, Jewish culture. They're, they're receiving persecution from the more uh, licentious, liberal, Roman culture. And in the same way, if we're walking with Jesus, especially as our country becomes more polarized, we're going to get persecution from both the secular left and the secular right. This is, this is the consistent mark that I see in Christians, again, that I think are walking spirit-filled, holistic, gospel-centered way. So the, go- the secular left is never going to accept Our sexual ethic, our view on gender, our belief that unborn babies have great value and should be protected. And in the same way, the secular right is not going to like our values of biblical justice, our allegiance to a heavenly citizenship over a political party, or our belief that we live as Christians in a country that really does look more like Babylon than the promised land. The early Christians, they were persecuted for claiming that there was a king greater than Caesar. And likewise, we proclaim a king, but instead of being over Caesar in our culture, we proclaim a king over the kings that tend to run and drive people in this culture, kings like power and sex and politics. We proclaim a greater king. And we do this, we are going to have persecution from both sides. It may not be as significant as what we read in this passage, but we're going to experience it. We have little power. And trials are going to come our way. This is not the easiest thing to accept, but it is the first thing that we have to accept if we are going to understand anything about what Jesus wants us to know about endurance. But we will not know endurance until we're tested. We have to be tested. You don't know if you're a good sprinter until you try to sprint. You don't know how good you are at lifting weights until you actually lift weights, and the same thing is true about our faith. We're not going to know how we are in this category of endurance until we are tested. So, one of my flaws is one of my many flaws. I, I am prone to optimism, Naive optimism even maybe. My parents used to say as a kid that if Jim woke up on Christmas morning and found a bunch of poop in his stocking, he would run around the house yelling, where's the pony? And so I had this tendency to think I would be good at things before I ever really am tested or try these things. And a few years ago when I was in much better shape than I am now, we were watching, I was watching American Ninja Warrior with my wife and I just blurted out, I think I'd be really good at this. And she looked at me, and she started laughing, and she said, what are you talking about? You have not done one single thing that you're watching on TV. How could you think you would be good at any of these things when you've never tried a single one before? And and she was right, but in that moment, what she was saying is, you haven't been tested. You can say, I'd like to try these things, I'd like to see where I am, but you can't just say you'd be good at it. And the same thing is true in our faith. It's in the testing of our faith. We see what's really there. We see what comes out. And if you don't see your need for endurance, if you don't come in feeling and asking God, I need endurance in my faith, then there's something about the testing of your faith that hasn't happened. And I'm not trying to be too harsh, but there is a a diagnostic for us in this because if we don't see our need for endurance, we haven't been tested, we're not probably receiving pushback on our faith either from the secular left or from the secular right, then maybe there's a place there that we need to really examine where our faith is. But when we finally realize that we have little power and that trials are going to come, because of our faith, then we will long for the ability to endure. We'll cry out to God and ask Him, where do I get this endurance that you're promising, that you're calling us toward? And that's the second question, how we get this endurance. This is where we have good news. So the first part wasn't all that encouraging. This part is really encouraging. We have little power. We're not in control, but there is someone who has great power and is in control. And that is Jesus, and he is telling us here that we get endurance through the key in the door. Look at verse 7 and 8. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? One of the hard parts about Revelation is how much it uses the Old Testament. There's a ton of Old Testament that Jesus and John are just assuming the reader knows. And before I go forward, I do want to plug, June 26th, we have a seminar uh, at 5 o'clock up here, free seminar, free childcare, we'll have food available. Greg Lanier, Dr. Lanier from RTS, is going to give a seminar on how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. And this is one of these areas. You have to know this. He's teaching from a book that he just published. I own the book. It's a very good book. So, I encourage you to come invite your friends June 26th. But Revelation actually has more Old Testament than any other book of the New Testament. Revelation uses lots of Old Testament, and Revelation does not cite where it is. It does, you don't read it and, and, and cite. This is from Isaiah twenty two twenty two, which is exactly what Jesus is quoting here. He's quoting, he's citing Isaiah 22, which says, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So now we know that he's quoting Isaiah, but we still need to know what's going on in Isaiah to understand what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about Eliakim. Eliakim was Uh, The steward of the house of David, kind of like the prime minister of the house of David. He had a lot of power and authority in the house of David. And because of that, he had keys. Keys, he could access the front door, the treasury, the dining room, the bedrooms, and most of all, he could access the throne room. This is really important. And with this key came power and authority. And Jesus is saying I have an even greater key. In a similar way that Eliakim had this key that could open up the throne room of David. I have a key that can open up the greater throne room. To you. I have this power. And when I open this door, Jesus is saying it will never be shut for you. So this is the key to the passage. The open door is the key to endurance. And I want to I want to look at this open door for a minute. I kind of want to look at it from two different angles. I want to look at how this door was opened for us and what it is that lies beyond that door for us. Because this is the key to understanding everything that Jesus is saying about how to endure trials because of our faith in this life. And a lot of this part of it I did get from, from largely Tim Keller. I changed a little bit of it, but I want to give him credit for that. So how is it that this door is opened? All right, we need to remember We need endurance. Why? Because we have little power and trials are coming. We have little power. Another way to talk about trials in this life, you could probably do this with all trials, but I want to stick to the immediate context trials that come on us because of our faith in Jesus. Another way that we can say the same thing is to say that we have closed doors in this life, we have desires. And when those desires don't happen, we can call those things closed doors. And it's important because every theistic religion pretty much believes in a God that is, has some sort of power and some sort of control. But only Christianity has a God who became human in the second person, the Trinity Jesus. This is really important. I want you to stay with me. We'll do a little bit of thinking here because this is the game changer. Because only we have a God who knows what it's like to hold this key and be locked out. I want to say that again. Only we have a God who knows what it's like to hold this key and be locked out of a closed door. Jesus came to the earth to pay the penalty for our sins. He came to take on the wrath of God. There is no greater closed door that exists anywhere than going and receiving the wrath of God, the wrath of God that we deserve but he did not deserve. Nevertheless, he went to the cross knowing that that door was going to be closed to him. He knew the night before it stressed his body out so much that he sweat blood. He knew the closed door that he was walking into. He was not only going to lose the fellowship that he had on a minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis with God he was going to lose that and in turn receive the full wrath of God that all of us deserve on that cross and that he would breathe his last breath his heart would stop and that he would die Jesus if anybody could have said not for me I'm not going to have that closed door I'm going to open it. it could have been Jesus but Jesus it would have been Jesus but Jesus didn't do that because he wanted that door to be opened for us that door was closed to Him so that it could be open for us. And it doesn't mean that the closed doors in this life aren't going to be painful. It doesn't mean that they won't be difficult. But it, what it does mean is that in that pain, we will have the hope to go forward because we know That the closed doors that we take on because of our faith, not, not, not just difficulties in life in general, but the closed doors that we take on because of our faith, we know that ultimately we do that because the ultimate door is being opened at the end of this life. And so when we see that door, when we see how it's opened, it gives us perspective, it gives us hope to be able to endure. So that's how it's opened. Now, we get to see what's beyond that door and I've said this before, a lot of you know I I, I really like sci-fi movies. I'm kind of like a sci-fi nerd. I love Star Wars and Star Trek and Harry Potter and Stranger Things, and there is this one common denominator, I think, in every kind of movie in this genre. You have a normal person who has been in some way taken out of their normal life. They could have been taken to another place, another time, shown something supernatural. They could go to the upside down, whatever it is. They see something, and then they're inserted back into their normal life, but they can't live in a normal way anymore. They know something that fundamentally changes the way that they perceive everything around them. And the same thing is true here, what Jesus is saying. He's showing us something that when we see it and when we grapple with it, we can't return to this ordinary life and be the same anymore. So what is it that he's showing us? What's beyond that door? Verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Then I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. And then thirdly, my own new name. So what is it that Jesus is letting us see here? He's letting us see that we will be a pillar in the temple of God in All the commentaries that I read, they agree that he's doing something very specific with Philadelphia here. Because in Philadelphia, they had uh, frequent earthquakes. About 50 years before this message would have been delivered to them, Philadelphia was largely flattened by an earthquake. And so people, very rightly, were like, I don't want to live next to all these tall buildings because that's dangerous. They can fall down. And the most dangerous place to, to live would have been near these massive Roman temples. They would have shook. They would have fallen down. Fallen down. They would kill people. And so that's a dangerous place to live. And Jesus is saying, one day, you, you, you endure these trials. One day, I am going to bring you to a temple that will never shake. I am going to bring you to a temple that will never fail you. I am bringing you to a temple that will never fall down. And you not only get to... You're not only simply a visitor in this temple. Jesus is saying you are actually a pillar in this temple. You are a part of this temple built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It isn't made with dead statues and marble and stone. It's going to be made of us in some way. And this temple that Jesus is promising us, it's not going to fail the church in Philadelphia the way that 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 Roman temple will fail them. And it's not going to fail us the way that any of the temples and the idols of this life tempt us. Whether it's the temple of power, the temple of sex, the temple of money, or the temple of politics, all of those things will shake. All of those things will eventually come crashing down, but not the temple that Jesus is bringing us into. It will never shake. It will never fall down. I mean, just kind of sit here for a second. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a pillar in the temple of God? Not like a frozen statue on display, but a real thriving part of it. I mean, I would be happy just to be a tile on the floor, and we're going to be the pillars that hold it up, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. With God who will eternally be in our presence, who will never leave us, never forsake us, never again to experience trial or closed door of any kind. And then we see that Jesus tells us we're going to have three things written on us. We're going to have God's, the, the name of God, the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem, and then the new name of Jesus' new name written on us. And what's being communicated is way beyond a tattoo, you know, he's, He is at the deepest possible level reinforcing to us, you are mine, you're my child. In Rob Farnsley's words, you are the apple of my eye. And I, I was thinking this week when my kids were little, we had more locked doors and locked cabinets around our house because we love our children and wanted them to be safe. And there's this tendency of little kids, when they see a locked cabinet or a locked door, they immediately think, there must be something wonderful behind there. That's why mom and daddy don't want me behind that door. They don't know that the reason that door's locked is because they have a mom and daddy who love them and want to keep them safe, and they don't, we don't want them behind that door. We know that it's actually best for that door to stay closed. And the same is true with our heavenly Father. And there will be a day that we don't doubt that at all. Because he will, when he marks us, it won't just be ink on a skin. It will go down to the core of who we are. And we will know at such a deep level that we are his. We are his children. We are loved. We will never doubt that. And Jesus is telling us, think about that now. Remind yourself about that now. When these trials come, know whose you are. That's what's on the other side of this door. God actually uses these closed doors. He uses them in various ways, and it's, it's hard to imagine, but one day we will be with Him and we will look back in the closed doors of this life, we'll be able to see ways that He actually used them, because biblical endurance, it produces something. This is the last part. It produces something. It produces what I would call purposeful suffering. So it's not, it's not unnecessary suffering, but biblical endurance, it produces purposeful suffering. The, the result isn't punitive, it's purifying. We are, there's good that comes out of it. There's ways that God uses these closed doors, even before we get through the great door at the end of our life or when Jesus comes back. There are ways that God uses these doors, and and I'll be quick, but there are three ways predominantly that God uses purposeful suffering in our life. And the first way is that He makes us more human. Suffering can drive us mad, or it can develop us. It can break us, or it can make us strong. And in the same way, it can make us less human, or it can make us more human. You remember Romans, the famous passage in chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all types of suffering, all pressures work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He knew, He also predestined to what? Be conformed into the image of his son. So all these trials, that's included in him. The net result is we are conformed more into the image that we were made to be, which is more human. These, These trials, these sufferings that we willingly take on because of our faith, they make us more into the image of Christ and more human, not less. Secondly, purposeful suffering, it actually draws people in. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. All right, the synagogue of Satan thing I addressed three weeks ago. You can go back and look at that. But the bowing down part is what I want to focus on here. Because bowing down, you know, sometimes it means worship, but it can also mean humility. And so, again, this is where Jesus is drawing from the Old Testament in Isaiah when there was a promise to the Jews that one day the Gentile world, they will come to you and they will bow down to you, bow down in humility saying, your God is my God. Which they they couldn't imagine what that would look like, but that's exactly what has happened in the early church in the New Testament. And what Jesus is saying is there's going to be a kind of twist on that promise. Those who persecute you. Through your endurance, you will display the glory of God in a way where those who persecute you will come to you and bow down and say, your God is my God. Purposeful suffering through persecution draws people in. And then thirdly, purposeful suffering brings the crown of life. We talked about this again a few weeks ago, but verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast that you... Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So what does it mean to have the crown of life? It means when we endure this life, when it is over, when we walk through that door, we have a crown waiting. And we remember if if purposeful suffering conforms us more into the image of Christ, makes us more human, then what's true about Jesus is going to be true about us. So that is going to be true in the sufferings in this life and it's going to be true in the glory that is to come. The suffering that Jesus endured, we will endure the same types of suffering for his name, but the glory that is yet to be revealed to us will be ours as well. So we identify with Jesus in every way. But when we get that crown, there will never be another closed door. There will never be another trial. There will never be... Another broken heart, another broken relationship, everything will be made the way that it should be. We will live without sin, with our Creator for eternity. And Jesus is saying, look down through that door that you can't fully see yet, but I'm telling you what it's looked like. Look through that door and let it change you now. Let it give you endurance. Because as Christians, we can approach the trials that come through persecution in in three-ish ways. We, we can be a normal 21st century Christian and just think trials and harm and pain is bad. We want to get away from it. And if we do that, when we do end up in these kind of trials, we're just going to end up in despair because we think this isn't how it should be. Or we could be a fatalist and, and think, well, there's just nothing we can do. Well, that isn't what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is calling us to is to be Christians who look at these trials that we will have from multiple fronts because of our faith in Jesus. And he's calling us to approach it like a Christian with hope. Hope that Jesus really has the key. Hope that Jesus really opens the door. And when I say hope, I'm not talking about, oh, I, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon so we can have a pizza lunch and I can hit golf ball with my kids. The hope that we have in Jesus is as sure as the sun rising. That's the hope that He's calling us to. In every trial and every suffering and every pain that we take on because of Jesus Christ, every closed door that we experience because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we take on and we endure because we know the ultimate open door that it's all leading to. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful. That you don't let us walk through these trials and suffering as if they are punitive, as if there's more righteousness to be earned, but you use them to continue to draw us closer to you, to conform us in the image of your Son, to draw other people in. And we pray that that would be the case. I thank you for brothers and sisters that I get to see model this well, for the encouragement that they are to me, and I pray that as my time comes, as all of our time comes, when we receive persecution for our faith, Lord, that we would do the same, that we would be that city on that hill. We would proclaim your glory because of a comfort that we feel deep inside that only comes from you and your Son and your Holy Spirit. We thank you, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.